You are listening to the Dabble Co. Podcast. I'm your host, nurse practitioner, Claire O'Brien. In healthcare, we have so many questions about what's trending versus what's actually the truth. So on this show, we're going to get to the bottom of it. It's health, it's wellness, it's beauty, explained by the people who actually know what they're talking about. Hey guys, welcome back to the Dabble Co. Podcast. I am your host, nurse practitioner, Clara Bryan, and I am personally irrationally excited about our guest today. It's Dr. Sujay Consagra. He is a pediatrician, sleep specialist. He is double board certified in pediatric neurology and sleep medicine, practices at Duke, and I found him on the TikToks and have never been so excited about a guest potentially, and sorry to all my other guests, but I... (laughs) Thank you so much for coming. I'm like, wow, that's that's quite so the pumped. intro. I have a, I have a lot to live up to here. I mean, listen, I would say I'm going to speak for moms in America. We are jacked to hear what you have to say today. Well, well, I'm excited to share it and excited to share the sleep message. Amazing. So, okay, I'm going to tell everybody how I found you. If if you're following me on Instagram and you saw this story the other day, this TikTok came across my for you page. And it's, of course, what, first of all, the Coolio as it walked through the Valley of the Shadow of Death, which is, if you know me at all, I'm like 90s rap aficionado. So it was immediately sucked in. And it's, it's Dr. Consagra saying, you know, that you get these comments all the time about follow the research. And you're basically like, bitch, I am the research. And <laughs> the flashing in the background is all the studies that you've authored and co-authored. And then my favorite comment was Beach Gym pediatrician saying laughs in first author. And I was like, only like super nerds will get that. Anyway, that's I, lo- I love you. I love Beach Gym. She, she is truly a gem. I will tell you that I, I learned from the younger crowd. What I did was I, I flexed um, is what people are telling me. And I, <laughs> I rarely and I, I rarely ever flex, I must, I must say. But this was just one of those comments where I'm like, I have to kind of establish that this is my world. This this is what I do. Because sleep is my life. It's not right. a side hobby. It's not something I do for for you know giggles on the side. This this is this is what I do, and I'm pretty it's serious all you do. about it. That's right. That's all I do. So okay, so tell us about your training because you you start as a pediatrician. So just tell tell everybody who's listening. And and by the way, like yes, we're talking about pediatric stuff today, but it's not like a lot of these concepts aren't going to play into adult sleep as well. I mean, that these are not necessarily unique to children. Turns out we sleep at every age. So yes, absolutely. <laughs> some, some of the things that I'll tell you will apply to specifically to kids, but a lot of the core principles of sleep will apply well into adulthood as well. Okay. So how did you get started? How did you, how did we get here? So my core training is in child neurology. So child neurology is a five-year training after after four years of medical school. We do two years of general pediatrics and three years of neurology training. And that's you know, our bread and butter in child neurology. It's things like epilepsy and seizures. It's things like developmental concerns. Anything that affects the brain and nervous system all the way out to the muscles falls into the category of child neurology. Then after that, I went on to do a year of fellowship training specifically in sleep medicine. People can get into sleep medicine in a variety of ways. It can be through the pulmonary route. People become you know, lung and, and breathing specialists and then do the sleep, um, sleep stuff. People do the general pediatrics route. You can go in a variety of ways, but I chose to do my base training in child neurology, understand the brain and the nervous system, and then sleep medicine. 
ENT, a little bit of sleep medicine in my background, the tiniest bit compared to what you do, but we used to do some sleep surgeries and the Inspire device. I don't know if you've heard about that, but um, of course, yes. Yes. It was we, awesome. we, work, we work closely with our ENT colleagues. It really is yeah. kind of a multidisciplinary field. Dentistry, sleep dentistry is involved, pulmonologists, neurologists, ENTs. It's a it's a big group. Okay, so your your big thing that you're talking about, I, I feel like that's garnered you the most attention right now is sleep training. Can we talk about that? That's very let's controversial, talk about it. and it shouldn't be, but like, I'm, it's just it, uh, it's controversial. So Claire, you're so right. I, I I always joke when it comes to sleep training, the social media world will have you believe that it's a huge debate. It's a yep. huge debate amongst harm and benefit, and these are all the harms. These are all the benefits. Amongst the medical community, amongst sleep specialists, it's important to realize there's no debate. There's no debate. Yeah. It's not even a debate. You know, it's, like, bitch, it's I am the into, research back it's, here. It's, I mean, like, it's, it, you know, it's, it's turned into this debate because everybody has opinions, and that's great. Everybody's entitled to their opinions. And I say, I don't want you to even trust my opinion. Let's just do it based on the data. Let's just go to the research and see what does the research tell us? You know, don't worry about what I'm telling you. Let me be a conduit of the research that's out there and, sh and let me share that with you in a way that hopefully just abides by the research. And we don't have to worry about everybody's opinions and, you know, what their grandparents say and what their cousin's friend is saying on social media. Let's just go to the research. So what what is sleep training? I mean, I've done it with two children. So I, I feel like and I, I'm, I'd love to know. I don't want to digress, but I'd love to know how you feel about I probably know, but like baby wise, moms on call, those, those programs we followed baby wise. And then moms on call is essentially just kind of a version of that. And then I have a, a friend who has a program called baby settler, kind of all the same. But like when, when you say sleep training, what does that look like to you? What do you, what do you, what do you consider to be sleep training? Sure. So, so simply put, you know, sleep training is, it's not the medical term we use. It's the, it's the common conversational term we use in mm -hmm. order to um, help children learn how to become independent self-soothers when it comes to the process of falling asleep. And mm -hmm. uh, at its core, if we want to medicalize it, you know, there's a term that we use, it's called behavioral insomnia of childhood, sleep onset association subtype. That's, that's a long kind of medical med medical word. And it's, I mean, it's very, it's very common. It's not, I, I'm not going to say children have a disorder. I'm going to say it's, it's super, super common. But what does it look like? Well, it looks like a child that has become dependent on something in their external environment to help them transition from wake to sleep. Adults can have this too. Think about that having the television on. Some adults say, I have to have the TV on to fall asleep, mm -hmm. or I have to have my meditation app playing some music for me in order to fall asleep. That's a sleep onset association. Something in your environment that your brain has learned takes you from wake to sleep. Now, mm -hmm. this, this wouldn't be a problem if we just slept in a super deep sleep the entire night, right? We close our eyes, fall asleep, then we wake up in the morning after being in like a deep, deep slumber. But that's not how sleep physiology works. We know we sleep, we sleep in cycles. Adults go through cycles every 90 minutes. Infants go through cycles every 50 to 60 minutes. So we're cycling between deep and light stages of sleep. And we have multiple normal awakenings at night. So the problem is when we have that normal awakening, if we look around and now our environment is completely different than how we first fell asleep, we're going to want that same environment put, put back into place to transition back to sleep. And so if a child has become dependent on a caregiver, which is super common, my children did it. You know, I'm a pediatric yeah. sleep doc. My, my children yeah. had every sleep association in the book. You can actually help teach a child how to fall asleep independently. 
Many children do this on their own without any type of sleep training. This is the one that we're all jealous when we see that post of our friend, like, oh, my child's sleeping through the night at 12 weeks of age. And well, they didn't really sleep through the night. They just learned how to become a self-soother on their own. And now they can transition back to sleep whenever they have a normal awakening. So sleep training refers to the process of helping teach them how to settle to sleep independently. There is ample data to support multiple approaches to to sleep training and teaching children this skill. But it's an important skill and it helps connect sleep cycles for children. So when do you recommend, let's, I mean, let's talk about from babies. When, when do you recommend people start training their kids, babies, infants? I mean, is that, can you start too young? Is there, is it ever like, oh, that's too late? You, you can start too young. So this is the concept of what I, what I call, you know, responsible sleep training, which is, you know, there is another kind of faction out there which says, oh, you can sleep train at any age. And, you know, and that's just not the case. There are children go through brain development at certain uh, stages and certain ages. And so the the usual uh, low, low end is around six months and some children as early as four months. But we know six months we feel is a really safe cutoff for an otherwise healthy child that's growing and developing well and doesn't have un- other underlying medical issues. Six months is, 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 a, is a good age. There are lots of caveats here too. So we always say, well, you know, in, in order to set yourself up for success at six months of age, you still want to do all the stuff that you enjoy. If you know, all the cuddles, all the routine, all the hugs, all the fun stuff, the feeding, everything that you typically do at the start of the night you want to do. But it's mm-hmm. just that the transition from wake to sleep is where sleep training starts to apply. And I'm happy to go through some of those techniques depending on which direction you'd yeah. like to go here. <laughs> no, I think it's super helpful for people to hear and and hear what's safe and and not not safe for babies and what's help going to be helpful for them in the long run versus setting them up for a dependency later on down the road. I know, I think whatever you want to whatever nuggets you want to give people would be awesome. Happy to. And I always to also tell people sleep training is not synonymous with weaning nighttime feeds. You know, just because you sleep train a child does not mean they're not, they're not going to wake up to feed if they're hungry. And uh, also similarly, we never want to sleep train through hunger. That's unfair to, to an infant. If they're hungry, we have to feed them. And so, yeah. um, and that's, that's kind of like my bottom line across the board. If your child is already naturally weaned off of you know, feeding at nighttime, that can make the process somewhat more straightforward, but you can still sleep train and breastfeed or feed your child at nighttime. That's totally fine, you know? Um, yeah. And that's an okay. important thing for everybody here kind of off the bat, because I oftentimes get pushback from breastfeeding advocates. And I, I'm, a, I'm a breastfeeding advocate, I'm a pediatrician by nature. We know the benefits. And so that's super important to kind of just say off the, off the bat. So there, there are four core approaches that have data to back them up. And there mm-hmm. are offshoots of these four, four techniques, but those techniques are extinction technique, which is kind of like the synonymous with quiet out, which most mm-hmm. of us actually steer away from now. You know, it's kind of fallen out of favor that the pure kind of quiet out techniques, uh, but it has data to support safety and efficacy. We can talk about that. The second technique is called graduated extinction. This is also commonly known as the Ferber technique, where you have intermittent check-ins until your child kind of self-soothes. The third one is called uh, camping out, oftentimes known as things like the, the chair method or the sleep lady shuffle, et cetera. This is a slow, gradual kind of mm-hmm. a distancing of yourself over time from the nighttime process. And the fourth one is known as scheduled awakenings, which is a very difficult process to actually, uh, to actually uh, implement. And so I usually recommend doing that with the help of a sleep physician or a sleep professional if you're trying to do that method. But my two go-tos are usually graduated extinction, aka the Ferber method 
or the camping out technique. Is there another term besides extinction? Because I feel like the word extinction is going is going to potentially turn parents off to these methods. Could be wrong. Just don't love the word extinction. I hate the word as well. You know, if we could go back and do the nomenclature again, we'd probably pick different words. Even like sleep training, it makes it sound like we're going through some sort of like a boot camp. You know, right? I like right. call it sleep sleep teaching, sleep nurturing, whatever whatever word you like you like to give it. But no, the, the formal the formal medical word is, is extinction for that first method, but it's commonly known as cry it out, you know, popularized yeah. by Mark Weisglip. Uh, and then graduate extinction is, is the Ferber method. I mean, we definitely did that. I know I, I told you this in a message or email or something, but I, my dad and brother are both pediatricians. Dad's about 75. Sorry that he listens. Dad, is that how old you are? I can't, I can't remember. But so, you know, he's like super old school, Ferber, like, cry it out. They'll be fine. And and we, you know, we had great sleepers, which I attribute to, to those methods like moms on call, baby wise, which aren't, I, I think it's important to, like you said, we're not asking them to cry or sleep through hunger and neither are those programs. They're asking you to, to, and I mean, I am assuming you agree with them, but I, I don't know. They're asking you to just stay on a, a routine, a schedule, a pattern so that the baby is essentially learning like, okay, I, this is what comes next. And now I need to be asleep. And this is what comes next. And now I need to, to eat. Do you feel like those are helpful pr- programs for yeah, parents? You know, everybody, add, everybody adds their own kind of special sauce to the core of getting rid of sleep onset associations. You know, some people say, mm-hmm. oh yeah, you should, you should wake and eat and then, you know, play and then sleep, et cetera. Some people say you should get rid of it this way. Everybody has a slightly different approach. As long as the core principle comes back to at the appropriate age, helping a child learn to settle to sleep on their own at the beginning of the night, and then mm-hmm. similar with nighttime awakenings, then you're on the right track. Okay. The special sauce you want to add is kind of up, up to you. Um, and there are ways you can modify any of these techniques and kind of call it your own. But then in the day, it all comes back to kind of the, the four core principles uh, and proven methodologies to help, help a child learn how to sleep well through the night. And will you, can you talk about some of the issues that can arise when babies and or children, you know, are not sleeping as much as they should. And I mean, just the general importance of, of sleep truly in the development of children. Yeah. So, you know, we know that sleep is incredibly vital. I'll tell you that at, at the early infant stage, you were talking zero to six weeks of age, children have no real semblance of day or night. They're just kind of sleeping and waking at any time they want, et cetera. And that's that's physiologically normal for their brain. They're able to do that. They're able to get the sleep that they need one way or the other. Infants over time do eventually still get the sleep that they need. They're pretty good at that because their sleep drive, their need to fall asleep is so high that they are eventually able to get the sleep one way or the other. So I think that children usually will get the full sleep that, that they need in a 24-hour period. But as children get older, if the habits are such that they don't have great sleep and they're reducing their either quality or quantity, we know that has real implications when it comes to behavior, focus, uh, attention, schoolwork, mm-hmm. et cetera. As they go into those early school age you know, years, I, I tell people that's their job, right? Their, their, their daytime job, like our daytime job, their daytime job is to, is to do well in school and thrive and you know, become productive. And so um, sleep deprivation, poor sleep quality can certainly erode from that. Uh, we know that there are a myriad of health consequences, and these become more prevalent as we get older and we have a lower kind of reserve for the amount of um, you know, medical issues that our body can, can deal with. So we know that sleep deprivation can increase 
um, risk of, you know, all-cause mortality, we think. You know, sleeping too little, and some studies say sleeping too much, um, can, can increase risk of all-cause um, mortality. So, um, impl- in, you know, implications on immune function, cardiovascular function and health, blood pressure, all of that, all sleep plays an incredibly important role. So importance in the early phases and all the way through um, our entire lifespan, sleep is critical. Gosh, it makes me really sad when I feel like there are so many kids diagnosed with behavioral problems, issues in school, you know, potentially ADD, ODD. I, I think about like, I think about foster kids a lot where they're bouncing around. I'm sure they're getting terrible sleep, possibly nightmares, and then they're diagnosed. It's just this snowball effect, right? So, oh my gosh, like when should you take your kid to be formally evaluated and then maybe they maybe they also have something like sleep apnea. I, I guess that's what I'm. I don't even know what I'm really asking. Like, when do you take your There's kids a, in, and what's possible? Yeah, I hear what you're saying. You know, the challenge here is that sleep is it's essentially the arrows point in both directions when it comes to almost every single medical issue. Sleep can make those issues worse, and if you have a problem with those issues, it can make sleep worse. So, for example, mm-hmm. we talked about ADHD. We know that children with ADHD can have challenges with with sleep and kind of settling their brains down. And the flip side, if you have a problem with disruption sleep quality through something like sleep apnea, you can manifest with symptoms that very much mimic ADHD, you know, right. inattentive, hyperactivity, et cetera. Children, when they don't sleep, they don't just take more naps and get sleepy throughout the day. They get hyperactive, they get irritable, uh, they get impulsive. And a lot of these behavioral manifestations can mimic other symptoms. And so my, my overarching, you know, kind of my blanket statement here is, well, there there may be lots of other you know, comorbid medical conditions going on, but still try to focus on optimizing the sleep, regardless mm-hmm. of whether you think that's the sole contributor or contributing in a in a minor way to whatever other medical issue you're dealing with. So, for for example, with ADHD, yes, they may have this primary ADHD. You know, their brains may be wired in such a way that they are intrinsically they're going to have the manifestations of ADHD. If you don't get the sleep you need, it likely is going to make that worse, mm-hmm. right? And so. Regardless of how much sleep is playing a role, you still want to optimize sleep the best that you can. So that's that's kind of my approach. So how do, how do parents do that when at baseline it's kind of like when I, like when you got somebody that's got obstructive sleep apnea and you're telling them to lose weight, but we know that the sleep apnea is messing with the hormones that's like helping them lose. Great weight. Point. You know, it's like, yes. like how do we that's even a great example tell them yeah. to to optimize sleep when they feel like they can't. Yeah, Claire, this is a great example. I will tell you that when it comes to sleep issues, I kind of divide them into kind of two categories. One in which there are behavioral interventions and things that you can do when it comes to sleep hygiene, routine, and the behavioral strategies to help with things like the sleep training for behavioral insomnia related to sleep onset associations. There are behavioral techniques to help toddlers when toddlers have limit setting issues, which is another, Mm. the other second type of behavioral insomnia. But there are other sleep disorders that thankfully are are more rare, but can very much disrupt sleep quality. So you talked about sleep apnea. About a quarter of children that snore regularly actually have obstructive sleep apnea. I thought it was higher than that. I thought it was like 70%. Yeah. So when you look at the data, about 12% or so of children snore regularly Uh and somewhere between one and 6% or one and 3%, depending on the study you you read, actually have obstructive sleep apnea. So if you snore regularly, it's about a quarter. For adults, if adults snore regularly, you have about a 50% chance of having obstructive sleep apnea. And the, the definitions for what, what meets criteria for obstructive sleep apnea is different in adults and in kids. 
Right. But it's diagnosed with a sleep study, an overnight sleep study, to determine whether that's the issue. In, in young children, we always think about obesity in, in adults causing sleep apnea, but even that is incorrect because you can just have anatomical issues, which is the way that your jaw is shaped or the way that you know your, your palate is shaped. That tonsils, can lead to, adenoids, that kind of thing. And, and then for young kids, that's right. It's tonsils and adenoids are the, are the main culprits, large tonsils and adenoids leading to obstruction. So you can have a very thin child, but still have obstructive sleep apnea. So if your kid's snoring, honestly, it, it really is, it, it's kind of, brushed off, I feel like by a lot of parents. And then, I mean, I've I used to see it a little bit brushed off by, sorry guys, but some pediatricians and it's like, it actually can be a much bigger deal. It's not just cute. Like my kid snores. And I mean, I'll just say this. I, I try really hard not to delve too much into my kids stuff, but one of our kids really wasn't that significant of a snore. And, um, a lot of things eventually led to a sleep study and she has had obstructive sleep apnea. Um, she also had central, which is a different animal, but you just, you just never know. And it's worth evaluating further. Yeah. So the, you know, the American Academy of Pediatrics has a great kind of practice parameter regarding when should you get a sleep study? And their criteria is if a child snores, and has one other sign or symptom of obstructive sleep apnea. And there's a nice list. You can find this paper. I believe it was published in 2012. It's, it's been a while since the parameters came out. But it nicely breaks down the other additional signs or symptoms. And those signs and symptoms can include, but are not limited to, frequent snoring. So snoring plus frequent what? snoring okay. satisfies <laughs> the criteria. It's kind of okay. silly. Every but, night. There you um, go. Or, or snoring plus witnessed gasping or blockages in breathing. So, you know, that classic noise of somebody snorting themselves awake. That's that's a blockage in breathing. If they have snoring plus large tonsils, that's enough. Mm-hmm. If they have snoring plus a, a craniofacial d- a defect or change, so you know small jaw, you know cleft lip, cleft palate, etc., those are reasons to think about getting a sleep study. If you're o- significantly overweight and snore, if you're significantly underweight and snore, if you're having nighttime accidents that are I, most usually secondary, in which you've actually had control of your bladder at night and then suddenly develop accidents again. That's a reason to consider a sleep study. So the list kind of goes on and on, but the, but the core here is it should be snoring plus one other sign or symptom that makes you worried enough to get a sleep study. Yeah. And, and when I did work with the pediatric ENT team, I, I'm telling you, we were talking about ADD, ADHD earlier. It was remarkable for some kids. Like they had would high suspicion of sleep apnea and or, you know, proven by PSG, take the tonsils out. Parents would come in like, this is a different child. Um, so it, it's just, it's worth pushing further for evaluation if you need it. I say sleep is the ultimate elixir of life. It helps so many things. You get the sleep that you need and magically many things improve. I want to tell you guys about my favorite supplement company, Thorn. Our family personally uses several of their products. So I use their collagen in the morning, and then I use a few things that were recommended by my headache doctors. The reason we use Thorn is they are so high quality, highly tested. They don't have fillers like so many other supplement companies do. They have partnerships with hospitals and organizations all over the country, like Mayo Clinic, Medical University of South Carolina, the UFC, huge athletic organizations. So if you are looking for high quality supplements, I always recommend Thorn. You can get 15% off any Thorn products by going to Thorn, that's Thorn with an E, thorn.com slash you slash dabbleco. Create an account and you'll get 15% off and free shipping every time. I'll put that link in the show notes. Okay, hot take. 
and I have no clue what your answer is going to be. How do you feel about melatonin? Because I feel oh, yes. like I know I we could go anywhere. I don't know. The world is our, our oyster. I don't know where what you're going to say, but man, there 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 are a lot of people using it. And I, I mean, you know, full confession, like we use it when I feel like we need to. I, I don't know what. But you just get it on the shelf. I mean, it's a gummy. It's there's no regulation at all. Okay, so I want to double this question. There's melatonin, but then there's like magnesium and L-theanine. So could we maybe talk about kind of all of the little sleepy gummies that are available for kids and your what are your thoughts and feelings? There is a lot to unpack here. And let's see if I can do it in an organized, rational fashion. First of all, you're completely right. These things are available over the counter, off the shelf. And because they don't have any regulation behind them, there have been multiple studies that show that some bottles have much more melatonin in them. Some have zero melatonin in them. Some have additional additives like serotonin and even like CBD that, you know, it's, it's, so it's, it's a wild, wild west when it comes to supplements in general. Yeah. So it's, you know, the the most recent study in these melatonin gummies, like it had all sorts of crazy things in them. So, you know, so I always say, if you have gotten to a point where uh, melatonin is indicated based on a conversation between you and your pediatrician then you should try to use a reliable form of melatonin. And, and, and in my book, it's usually kind of the generic versions from these big box pharmacies like, you know, CVS and Walgreens and, you know, Natrol has reliable melatonin. So if you have that conversation with your pediatrician, and again, I'd never advocate for anybody to say, oh, I'm going to go take melatonin without having consulted somebody that can give you some medical guidance, then you have to be careful about where you're getting the melatonin from. So that's, that's number one. Number two, just like with many other things in the sleep medicine world, we have data. You know, we have data to say, where does melatonin actually useful? And the use cases are actually much more narrow than most people think. We know that melatonin is an effective supplement in altering your circadian rhythm, the timing okay. in which your body naturally feels awake and naturally feels sleepy. And the classic circadian rhythm disorder is what we see in teenagers and young adults in which they have a delayed circadian rhythm. If for some reason, for the for the adolescent and the young adult brain, your circadian rhythm naturally delays. How does that look? Well, it looks like feeling very awake in the late evening and nighttime hours until mm-hmm. it's much later than when you should be going to sleep. And so teenagers naturally, they push their bedtimes later and parents are yelling like, why can't you go to sleep? And the teenager is yelling back, I can go to sleep. And they're right. You know, their, their body clock oftentimes is delayed. So they feel naturally awake. And it manifests as a later natural wake time. So that's why teenagers are sleeping in so late you know, on the weekends. Um, and so okay, their body clock, That's helpful to know that it's not, they're not just lazy. Uh, so, you know, it's, of course, electronics can all worsen and propagate this issue. But no, the teenage brain naturally likes to delay mm-hmm. the circadian rhythm. And so that's why we advocate for delayed school start times, because it more naturally kind of corresponds to what their brains want to do it when they want to wake up. So that's one use case for melatonin that actually can can advance the circadian rhythm, push it earlier to help children naturally feel sleepy earlier and naturally wake up earlier. Other cases are shift work and jet lag. That has data to support it. We use it when children have other, if they are somewhere on the autism spectrum scale, uh, Mm -hmm. if they're neurotypical, we know that melatonin can be helpful in that situation. And anecdotally, I found it helpful for children that have other neurologic kind of comorbidities like intractable epilepsy or or developmental delay due to genetic conditions, I've oftentimes found melatonin to be useful. But outside of that, if a child is otherwise healthy and they're young, particularly a child that's in the infant years and the the toddler years, the approach is usually a behavioral intervention 
because the problem is usually a behavioral insomnia or a behavioral problem. And so I oftentimes say melatonin is a little bit of a band-aid. That's an easy thing to kind of suggest at a, at a, at a clinic visit, yeah. but it's not getting to the heart of the issue. And I always say, well, let's address the heart of the issue and, you know, try, try to stay away from uh, supplements, whatever possible. Any supplement. So I think, I mean, I personally take magnesium. Well, I was trying to get off Benadryl and mag and melatonin was my uh, nightly for a little bit. So I take a magnesium powder that I find delightful. Um, so I don't, I mean, do you ever suggest magnesium, L-theanine? Those are also, yeah. I feel like so really popular a, right now. They're very popular and there's lots of, you know, there's lots of social media and, and other, you know, podcasts that are very, uh, very high on the supplement side of things. And I, I always, I, I take a step back, particularly for children. And I say, mm -hmm. well, if I can diagnose what the issue is, you know, and by all means, if you happen to have a low magnesium level for a child, I'll say, yes, you need some, you need some magnesium, <laughs> but it rarely for children manifests as a, as a, as a sleep issue, unless magnesium can actually help with, um, with can help children with constipation issues. And so totally. if you're having some GI related stuff, you know, magnesium can help kind of push things through and lo and behold, you're sleeping better because you're just more comfortable at night. Now on the adult side, I think this, there's still a lot to unpack here and I'm not I'm not going to say there's no role for magnesium, but I, I think there likely is a, a role somewhere, but we just need to, we need to have more data for us to feel comfortable saying, yes, you should use this. And in which scenario should you use this? That, that's where the data stands on magnesium. It's still a, a bit of a question mark. Some I mean, people are using it more for restless leg, et cetera. We just don't have definitive data yet. At what point too, am I like, this is all placebo genics. Like this is well, just makes well, here, me feel here's, like I took here's something. My, here's my stance on that. If it's helping you and it's not hurting you, I also don't argue with success. Yeah. <laughs> right? Sure. I mean, if it's helping you and it's not hurting you and you're not paying like $1,000 for this, uh, I'm not going to argue with your success. I'm going to say, that's great. It's yeah. helping. It's, it's helping. Right? So, yeah. Um, but for me as a sleep physician to proactively say, ah, you need to take this supplement because this is your, this is your issue. I haven't gotten, I haven't gotten to that point yet. I think what, what most parents struggle with that I kind of am just using my own, you know, friends and people we know is, is that kind of funky age between like not as much a toddler where they're like in a crib and you can, you know, really more kind of tell them what to do at night. It's that four to like eight or nine where they're just like, coming in your maybe they're having nightmares and i think that's where the melatonin comes in where you're just you just i mean you get desperate you get literally desperate of i am going to simply pass it sorry i just knocked my laptop off my table it's fine um but <laughs> you just get to where you're like but have probably because last night <laughs> i shit you not i am not kidding you last night it was whack-a-mole with my two children one of them has a cough and needed to tell me every 30 to 45 minutes i can't sleep i'm coughing and i was like girl i, I know and also now i can't sleep the other one's in this kind of nightmare phase and which like that's i mean that's where our, we're using melatonin cuz i i feel like but i also thought about do I switch in the bottle to um, Welch's fruit gummies? And so she thinks she's mm. taking a melatonin. Like, the, is it just placebo? And she's like, I need to take my sleep medicine. I don't know. 
But literally, yeah, I mean, no, ju- no, I'm not kidding you. I was awake every 45 minutes to an hour last night. I ran into someone in Target today that was like, oh, hey, are you Claire? Like, I love your podcast. And I literally answered her. I'm so sorry. I got 12 minutes of sleep last night. Like, please. I don't, I was like, I can't even have a conversation right now. Like, gosh, Claire, I feel like you're dropping so many interesting um, tidbits that I feel like, and I feel like I have to address everything. Can I, yes. can I just say a couple of things about what you just said? You know? Yes. Uh, First of all, I mean, the, the struggle is real. You know, when it, yes. we have we have built no ways of adapting to sleep deprivation. And yeah. when you're sleep deprived, I'm pretty convinced that it erodes at your soul. Right. I mean, it, it, it totally yes. because, you know, there's no we, there's no evolutionary mechanism by which to adapt to sleep deprivation because we never needed to. Like we always got the sleep that we needed. And now oh. we have the electronics and distraction, et cetera. No animal in the entire animal kingdom voluntarily sleep deprived itself except for human beings. You know, and so God, we're. Yeah, so your, your struggle is very real. Now, you mentioned a lot of other things too that I just want to address. <laughs> you mentioned that kind of, you mentioned taking a nighttime gummy. Can I just tell you, just for all the dentists that are probably listening, if you're going to give something at night, I always say, please stray away from a gummy because those things will stick to your teeth and cause cavities like you wouldn't believe. All right. And so unless you're like flossing diligently, try another mechanism by which to give them something. All right. So that's just my little shout out for any of your dental colleagues that are watching um, that I always mention. The other thing is, yeah, so the role of melatonin when it comes to things like nightmares. Now you'll be interested to, to hear that melatonin can sometimes worsen nightmares. God, okay? I knew you and were going to say I, that. I knew it. <laughs> I knew that was coming. I told you there was, told you there was just so much to unpack in, in, in that, you know, the rant that you went on and, and I wanted to unpack Damn each it. and every element here. You know, we could talk for days about sleep, uh, Claire. I swear to God, we could, we could talk for days, but so you want to be careful. You want to be careful about what you're using it to, to, to address. There, we can talk about nightmares if you want. We can talk about yes. recurring nightmares, how to get rid of recurring nightmares. You, you want to pivot there? Let's talk Please. about that. Please. <laughs> yes. Selfishly, I told yeah. you, I was like, I'm going to try really hard not to make this entire episode about my own self and children. No, well, a lot of people, a lot of people can relate. And now, so the first thing is to distinguish nightmares from night terrors, because we talk about night terrors. Oh, it's so different. Ter- a, yeah, a night terror is usually the young kind of school age, toddler years. A child wakes up screaming and yelling for no clear reason, appears incredibly frightened, does they're, not they're interact like, with you, does not right, know you're they're there. They're a zombie, right. literally. So, so that that's a night terror. And and what's happening in the brain there is very similar to sleepwalking, actually. But that's not what we're talking about. We're not no, talking no, no, about those. No. We're talking about nightmares. A child clearly is awake, recollects exactly what happened and says, ah, I had a dream about this, this, and this, and I'm yeah. frightened and I can't get back to sleep. All right. So- the first things first, you know, when a child is frightened, you, you kick into parenting mode and you, 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 you put sleep mode, kind of, you, you push it to the side. I always say, you know, when it comes to things like thunderstorms and teething and colds and, you know, you're going on vacation or child's having a nightmare, you're in parent mode and you're going to do what you need to do to help calm and relax the child. It's right. not a time to reinforce the severe, you know, kind of limits, et cetera. You go into parent mode and you, and you, and you, you calm them down and, and get them relaxed and make them feel confident and comfortable. Right. That's step one. Now, I think probably goes out saying for most of our listeners and, and for you as well. So step two, if your child is suffering from recurrent nightmares, right? So that's typically has the same theme to, to, to the nightmare, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm having a dream where I'm being chased and then you know, this, this, werewolf this happens. Right now. There, there's this, okay, so if, if, it's, if it's a werewolf, there's actually a very effective uh, treatment uh, called image rehearsal therapy that I wish we talked more about because it's really simple to do at home and can treat the vast majority of recurring nightmares. So this is how it looks. You have her actually walk through in detail what happens during her nightmare. You say, let's go step by step at what's happening. 
and you're writing these, these things down. Okay. First I'm walking and it's, I'm walking down a hallway mm-hmm. and the hallway is very dark. And then I see a door and then suddenly the door opens and out of that door you know, shoots out, you know, a werewolf shoots out. And as you're writing this down, you understand that the, the point in which the anxiety kind of peaks, you know, which mm-hmm. is when that door opens, that werewolf comes out. So then you tell your child, you know what we're going to do? We're actually going to write an alternate ending to this. That starts the same way. It starts with, hey, you're walking down the hall and it's dark. And then the door opens. And when the door opens, guess who comes out? Taylor Swift comes out of that door, you know, or, <laughs> right. or you know, I, Iron Man comes out of that door and says, you know what? Let's go hang out together and get some ice cream. And so you walk out of that door together and, and you're writing this down in detail, you know, right. like explicit detail so they can envision this in their head. They can envision this story. And then you're going to go and get uh, ice cream sundae and you're going to pour chocolate on that sundae. You're going to put sprinkles and you're both going to laugh and you're going to dance and it's going to be great, you know. And then you practice that new routine. You practice that new plot for a few minutes each day. You say, hey, let's go through our story. Let's go through our dream. And this is what happens. And this is what, and you have them close their eyes and envision it and practice it. And guess what? In the majority of situations, the dream actually changes into something So you would say favorable. rehearse it during the day. Rehearse you're, it during the day. That's it's right. night. I mean, you're, it's happening at night. And so you're like, it's 2 a.m. But like Taylor Swift came out because that that method was suggested. We're not us, doing that at night. But That's right. yeah, yeah. We're, not, we're not doing any of that at nighttime. <laughs> yeah. And the other important caveat here is that if your child has actually seen something traumatic or gone right. through something traumatic, right. you, of course, need to get the mental health professional care that you need. I'm not saying this is a substitute for any sort of care for a child that's undergone, you know, real trauma, et cetera. Right. Um, but but this is a helpful technique. Yeah. And and that was one thing that was suggested to us, but I think it sounds like we were doing it wrong because we really weren't talking about it during the day as much. I mean, and then it's like, well, what happens if they don't want to talk about it during the day? And like you said, there's actual trauma that can be involved and it just can get really complicated for parents. Yeah. And yeah, man, you're for an otherwise tired. for an otherwise healthy child that's otherwise, you know, healthy, happy, and that does not does hasn't gone through any sort of significant trauma. This is something you can practice. At some point you can do it as part of your routine, early part of your routine. They, they're like in the bathtub and like, oh, you know what? And make it fun. You know, it's be a fun exercise. Like, oh, remember our fun Taylor Swift dream? Remember our fun Iron Man dream? But let's let's go, let's go through that. It should be something that they can also help you invent the dream, right? So it can be a fun kind of game for them to be like, ah, I want a dream with, you know, the frozen characters, or I want a dream with this. Like, oh, let's work on that together. Yeah. Um, my, my favorite example here is when my son was, he was around four, he thought dreaming was a shared experience. You know, he thought if he was having a dream and Aww. I was in it, he thought I was having the same dream and we were there dreaming together, right? And so every night before bed, he'd be like, hey, I'd say, hey, what, what are you going to dream about? He's like, dad, tonight, let's meet Let's meet up. His favorite was, let's meet up at the candy cane fields. I had no idea what the candy cane fields were, but I'm sure there are tons of candy canes in this yeah. field. And I said, yeah, I'll be there. And every night in the morning, I, I showed up in that dream, right? I showed up with him in that dream because he... Made it happen. Right? He, he rehearsed it and it happened, right? Isn't that so sweet? Yeah. Oh, so that's that, cute. Just, just, an, just an example of what the brain is capable of doing. You know, these children are incredibly smart and incredibly capable of doing amazing things and changing their dream content. Is this one of those things? Oh, man. Okay. Well, I'm going to ask you about one last thing and then I'll let you go. I know you've given me uh, more of, of your time than, than we deserve, frankly. Us, this sleep oh, I've enjoyed it. I'm ladies. I'm, <laughs> Um, But let's talk about safe, like co-sleeping, safe sleep. Again, such a hot social media topic. I I don't want, 
oh my gosh, I really want to talk about baby-friendly hospitals, but I don't even know if I'm like, maybe we need episode two. We probably should do episode two, but anyway, I digress. Okay. I'd love to come back. Talk about co-sleeping and your thoughts on that. I I mean, kind of a rhetorical question. Gosh, this is where things can get uh, very dark very quickly based on kind of my experience on the child neurology side, not so much on the sleep side. I will tell you that there are a number of amazing safe sleep experts in our world, including the wonderful Rachel Moon in, in Virginia, who have dedicated their lives to well-being and safety of children yeah. that have developed these criteria for safe sleep based on all the research that they could possibly kind of put together. And they've come up with some standards regarding what safe sleep looks like. And this is all based on the American Academy of Pediatrics Safe, safe Sleep Guidelines. This is what I abide by. Uh, I am not a safety expert, but I know who the safety experts are. Mm-hmm. And I am a huge advocate for what the work that they do. So um, what does that look like? And then again, this, this can get very nuanced very quickly, but I will tell you that safe sleep in, in the Western world, in the U.S., how does it look? Well, it looks child sleeping on a, an approved, a consumer product safety commission approved safe sleep surface. Mm-hmm. And that's usually a bassinet or, or a crib. That, that, is, that surface is bare of anything other than you know, the sheet that, that covers it. That's tightly fitting without any space around the corners or edges for a child to get wedged. That is incredibly kind of boring looking, right? So there's no, yeah. there's no bumpers, there's no pads in an environment that is also conducive, which includes, you know, parents that are not using alcohol or smoking, ideally, you know, mom that's breastfeeding because, you know, that's also protective. Um, so there are lots of, there's lots of kind of, you know, additions, but if you're looking at just the environment, if you're going to a room and say, what does a safe sleep environment look like for an infant? It's on their own safe sleep surface where they're sleeping independently. That's bare of anything else. That includes blankets and things that you might think, oh, yeah. this is for the comfort of my infant. It's bare of all of that. You know, you, you put clothes on them that are not weighted, non-weighted, you know, like, you know, like a non-weighted sleep sack or clothes that are going to be comfortable to keep them warm, but you don't add things. You don't add pillows, you don't add blankets, don't add fluffy things. And it's got to be a firm surface. Again, approved by the Consumer Product Safety Commission because they actually have standards. They do testing on these crib mattresses to make sure they're the right firmness. Testing that they do not do on adult crib mattresses. Right. They do chemical testing on on baby crib mattresses. The standards to which don't apply to adult crib mattresses. You know things like lead Ooh. levels, etc. Right. So that so when people say, oh, you know, it's completely safe for them to sleep on an adult mattress, I say absolutely not from a firmness standpoint and also from a chemical testing standpoint. Right. Never um, knew that. Yeah. So all these things, it gets it gets very it gets very detailed and nuanced very quickly. Now, people always argue, well, this whole safe sleep thing, you know. It's not conducive to, to to breastfeeding. It's not conducive to you know my, my wanting to you know bond with my child in a specific way. And again, on the topic of breastfeeding, I'm a huge advocate. I'm a pediatrician first and foremost. Of course, we want to make sure mothers, if they so desire, have every opportunity to breastfeed their child. But that is not in in contrast to having a child that's safe. You you can have them in a bassinet next to you, or in in a, in a, in a separate sleep surface. And then be able to have easy access to breastfeed them at night and then get them back into their safe sleep surface. Mm-hmm. Incredi- incredibly, incredibly important. The, the most unsafe sleep surfaces we know are things like couches and recliners and sofas. We know we're talking like, you know, orders of magnitude more when it comes to safety risk in those s- sleep surfaces. 
less so when a parent is doing everything right in their own bed. But even right. that, we know that even in your own bed, you're doing everything right. The safest place that we know at this point is still on a safe sleep surface, a bassinet or a crib mattress. I think people just truly use that survivor. What's the term? It's like survivor's logic where they're like, I mean, I did that and my, and I didn't die or whatever, but people do not realize how easy it is for an infant to perish from the smallest of, of things. I mean, wrong positioning, their nose against, I think about the, you know, like things like the Dakotot, they've recalled the rock and play. I mean, we're not supposed to let them sleep for very long if you can help it. Like in a car seat, sometimes you just can't help it. There's kids that have died at daycare because they let them nap in the car seat, which is just because their neck was in the wrong position for too long. And I, I just, we, it's so controversial for, for, for no, no reason. I don't understand why not wanting your, your baby to die is, is controversial. I just personally don't get it. There are a lot of, there's a lot of gray territory in parenting and I will never, you know, come on your podcast and tell anybody, oh, they have to sleep train because you don't, you know, I'll never say, right. oh, you have to do this. You have to do this. But when it comes to just the basics of safety for infants, I, I, I don't compromise there. I don't yeah. compromise. Yeah. Now as a sleep doctor, I'll tell you, if you want to, if you want to bed share with your two-year-old, that's a personal decision. I'm not going to come and, you know, that's, like, oh, well, that's going to disrupt everybody's and that's a personal and oftentimes cultural decision that you that you're of course free to make. But when it comes to the safety of an infant, based on all the data that we have, based on the Western practices and on Western bed surfaces, et cetera, we think it's the safest to keep your child in their own safe sleep environment. Which is kind of where I'm so confused by the baby friendly hospital decisions. But again, don't want to digress. I will get enraged very quickly on that because you're basically stuck with your baby and like maybe on narcotics because you had a C-section or whatever, and you've had 12 minutes of sleep and the baby gets wedged uh, between you and the hospital bed and it's a night, whatever. Anyway, that's, oh I, I don't, I don't, I don't want to add a dark ending to this and it's, and, and but if yeah. you'd like, I'm happy to, I mean, the things that I have seen, I don't wish on my worst enemy right. on this planet when it comes to what happened to, to their child. I mean, it's, yeah. it is, uh, it is heartbreaking, heartbreaking. Devastating. And it only takes, it only takes one seeing this happen one time for me to, you know, say, I, I don't want this Not to worth ever, it. ever happen again to anyone on this planet. And, um, and so I say that as someone that's, that's seen what's happened multiple times yeah. in situations where a child is not kept in a safe sleep environment. And that's why I, I, I beg people, I say, listen, there's, there's no ego here. There's no, I, I'm begging you, you know, yeah. hands and knees, please keep your child safe. Now, I, the other thing that I will tell you is that there, there's a group that I, that I won't be able to convince. There's a group that's going to say, nope, you know, right. co-sleeping is, you know. Uh, but there's another group that actually wants to, but is so desperate for sleep. And they found a situation where, okay, we're getting some semblance of sleep that I have to continue it just to maintain sanity. And so I'm going to drop a little bit of a hint, and I can't share too much, but we are actually working on a technology at Duke that solves both of these issues, which is helping a child sleep yet keeping them in their safest sleep environment, which is the crib. And it's due out early next year. Okay. okay. So that's, okay. that's just, and we we'll think see you back early exciting. next year then. Great. <laughs> yeah. I would love to be back. Duke would love to sponsor that episode. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Maybe. That's bad. Yeah. Um, well, I, I'm on a not dark, dark note. Uh, you have also written a book. If, if there are parents listening who are like, 
you know, this sounds great. Love this guy's information and I'll link it in the show notes. I'm sure it's available on, on Amazon, but, um, happy, happy to share about the book. I think that's so great. And what, tell, tell us a little bit about your book. Sure. Well, it's, it's called My Child Won't Sleep. And, and the goal here, I actually wrote this <laughs> after I had my my first child. I was doing like yeah. a, lot, a lot of the background work and research, also sleep deprived. The goal was, I don't, I don't want to have to read 400 pages to read about what I could have learned about in two minutes, you know? Um, and so my goal was, why don't, instead of telling you, you know, oh, here's my method and this is what you should do. Why don't I just give you all the methods that actually have data to support them that are safe yeah. and effective? And just lay it out in a simple step-by-step. This is exactly how it works. And let you decide what works best for you and your family. And so the goal was it's 50 pages. You can read it in a time child naps, you know, and it covers sleep hygiene. It covers all four techniques for sleep, um, sleep training. It covers limit setting for toddlers. And it also covers insomnia and delayed sleep schedule for teenagers and adolescents. So it's meant to be a Great. kind of comprehensive zero to 18 kind of book for, and even at chapter four, last one applies to adults too, that have difficulty with, with sleeping. So, well, so there you go. That's awesome. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Truly. This was such a, such a fun episode and conversation. And guys, as always, if you liked this episode, please rate, share and subscribe and we will beg Dr. Consagra to come back and talk to us more about sleep. So hopefully maybe we can get some more. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it.